Hello everyone, so that was Matthew chapter 12, and if you have the church Bibles, that's on page 817, so page 817 in the church Bibles. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed, and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For, by the, tr for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus pulls back the curtains a little bit here in the middle of Matthew chapter 12 and shows us something of what's going on behind the scenes in his sweet gospel. And he sets that up with yet another powerful miracle, uh, driving another demon away from someone, verse 22. We don't think much about demons these days, but I think this is like the sixth time that Jesus uh, has done this since he started his ministry in chapter 4. We've read this about Jesus, that there were many people who were possessed by and afflicted by demons, and Jesus just routinely casts them out to free those people. This time it's a blind and a mute man who, who, after the demon is driven away, can see and speak again, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And we kind of lose sight of it because Jesus' miracles were just so many in this narrative. But, but every time he does something like this, he backs up his claim that the kingdom of God is at hand by doing such things. The people in the crowd catch a glimpse of it here and they say, can this be the son of David? There is enormous gravity to that question. A thousand years earlier, God had promised King David that he would put David's son on the throne and have him reign forever. 
And clearly God wasn't speaking of Solomon, David's literal son, uh, his immediate successor. He did reign Solomon in, in some glory, of course, but, but only for 40 years it was. And so ever since then, the people of Israel have been wondering on this and waiting for this, this eternal king that God has promised, a descendant of David who would reign forever, the anointed one of God, or Messiah in the Old Testament Hebrew, or or Christ in the New Testament Greek. That's what the people are asking here. Is this God's eternal king? But with a hint of uncertainty in their voices, perhaps. I mean, this guy wasn't really what they'd been expecting in Messiah. This is some plain old guy from Nazareth, isn't it? And hardly a kingly kind of guy either. I mean, he himself said that in the last scriptures we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. He was gentle and lowly, not not kingly and powerful, at least to our earthly kind of sense of that word. But 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 could it be him? They wonder. Could it be? I mean, how else all these miracles? How else does he wield the very power of God and so so instantly and effortlessly against the kingdom of evil in, in these demons, for example? They've certainly seen enough, I'm sure, to, to, be, to be getting drawn in here. They haven't quite got Jesus figured out, I don't think, but, but they're asking the right questions about Jesus. They're, they're starting to add all these things up in the right direction. But there are two responses here to what Jesus does. And the other one runs quite the other way to, to this idea of Jesus possibly being the eternal king of God, verse 23, that the crowd thought. The Pharisees, verse 24, can also see what Jesus is doing, but, but they speak of him as belonging to Satan. When the Pharisees heard it, this suggestion by the people that Jesus might be the son of David, God's eternal king, that they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The very opposite of what the other people had just said. The Pharisees had said this about Jesus back in chapter 9 too, that that Jesus was driving out demons by by the power of Beelzebul. Beelzebul is a common name for the devil, Satan. In chapter 10, Jesus explained what they meant when they said that. Basically, that they thought he was Beelzebul. But nothing could be further from the truth. Quite literally, nothing could be further from the truth. And so Jesus shows these Pharisees the obvious flaw in their logic. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by who do do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
the simple dichotomy between uh, and behind what Jesus is saying here is that, that spiritual things are either of God or of the devil. There is no in-between on that. And nor can the one be assigned to the other. And therefore, while these Pharisees are seeing everything that he's doing clearly enough in these miracles, seeing it at least in the tangible sense of that word, I mean, this deaf and mute man can suddenly speak and see. And so so Jesus' power over this demon is very hard to deny. But they're processing it all wrong. What's going on behind this? First of all, they misunderstand the devil in saying such a thing. Because if Satan can drive out his own demons, then then he is self-opposed and his kingdom wouldn't have been valid to begin with. But we all know that his kingdom of evil is real and valid, don't we? Because the whole world can feel the impact of Satan, just as we can all feel the fallout of sin privately in our own souls too as we try to wrestle our way through this life. So the Pharisees' argument here is is completely foolish, Jesus is saying. It's a nonsense. How could Satan stand if he was divided against himself? The Pharisees have taken the dominion of Satan far too lightly. But more so if Jesus is casting out these evil spirits so so instantly and, and effortlessly by the Spirit of God, which is the only plausible way that this can be happening, then clearly the kingdom of God has now kicked in. Just as Jesus has been proclaiming since the start of his ministry, if you recall in chapter 4 and verse 17, the kingdom of God has now come. Yes, it had broken into this world in front of these very people gathered around Jesus because the Spirit of God was at work in him right there in front of them, bringing in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the very polar opposite of the kingdom of Satan. And it has the very purpose in breaking into this world of defeating Satan's kingdom. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil's reign has now been broken, now that Jesus has come. The Pharisees, though, are just not seeing any of this. They're rejecting this this kingdom of God that they can see at work in front of them in Jesus to the extent of even thinking that it's the kingdom of Satan. But Jesus couldn't be clear about this, could he, in his language? The, The kingdom of God is upon them. And they must come under God's divine rule. Verse 29 is just another way of packaging all that up with a metaphor. Jesus says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus has power and authority over Beelzebul to bind him. And he has. That's why he can cast out the evil spirits of the devil's kingdom. Jesus is not just plain old human guy from Nazareth, uh, like everyone else in this world, 100% man. He's claiming authority 
over the spiritual world too. And he's doing a pretty fine job of backing it up, isn't he? The flip side, of course, to that is that Satan is powerless against the salvation that Jesus has come to bring in the kingdom of God. There is no common interest between these two sides, is Jesus' point under all this. You see, there are two kingdoms in what he's telling us here. And the kingdom of God has now arrived such that he has begun taking down the kingdom of Satan. There can be no shared interests and there can be no each-way bets for you and I. It is war. It is war. And either it's going to be victory by the Spirit of God upon Jesus Christ for everyone who hopes in him, as was the quote from the prophet Isaiah last week, or it will be defeat everywhere else in the camp of Satan. There's no neutral ground in any of this, and nor can the one be confused with the other. So Jesus is teaching here, we must be very careful as to where we stand, and we must be very careful as to where we stand in regard to Jesus. Because there are only two binary outcomes and and those two binary outcomes are are based on our response to Jesus, he says. He says that right here in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is not talking about his personal friend circle in first century Galilee. He is talking about the kingdom of God. And he is declaring that that kingdom centres on how we respond to him. If we are with Jesus, we are part of what God is now building. And if not, then not. There is no in-between. And the one is diametrically opposed to the other, which brings Jesus back to what the Pharisees were thinking about him being Beelzebul. They are making a fatal mistake, verse 31. Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. If Jesus is working by the Holy Spirit of God, then what these Pharisees are saying could not be more blasphemous. Could it? Because they would be calling God Satan or Beelzebul. And how much further could they be from the kingdom of God to to say such a thing of God? Jesus is warning them here, I think, to, to think through their position very carefully. Because if their logic is wrong, and it must be wrong because Satan can't be divided against himself, then there really is one and only one other explanation for everything that Jesus has been doing. And they would then be guilty of blasphemy in the highest degree by saying such things of the Spirit of God. Jesus' words there in that verse have struck fear into many a believer's heart. Uh, But in the context, we can see that he is speaking about something very specific and something decidedly intentional and something altogether extreme. 
I quite like the way Herman Bavinck captured this particular blasphemy that Jesus is speaking about here. Bavinck says this, It consists in a conscious and deliberate attribution of what has been clearly perceived as God's work to the influence and activity of Satan. That is, in a, in a deliberate blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. A defiant declaration that the Holy Spirit is the spirit from the abyss. That the truth is a lie. That Christ is Satan himself. Its motivation then is conscious and intentional hatred against God and what is recognised as divine. Its essence is sin in its ultimate manifestation, the complete and consummate revolution, putting God in the place of Satan and Satan in the place of God. It is therefore the ultimate expression of what we read in Isaiah 5 and verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Those being so enlightened to know God and yet so hardened and calloused as to declare him to be the devil. And these Pharisees are are walking that kind of dangerous line, Jesus warns here, because the kingdom of God is in front of them as as plain as everyone else around them is starting to see, but but they are so hardened in their rebellion against God that that the good and glorious wonders that they can see, they, they attribute to the devil. The context, therefore, makes it clear that this unpardonable blasphemy Jesus is warning about requires, first of all, a clear revelation of the very wonders of God. And second, a heart that is so dead set against him. It doesn't seem like the kind of sin that a believer could commit unintentionally or or unwittingly or, or in ignorance. So if as a believer you worry that you may have inadvertently committed this sin or that you might one day, then think about this. If you had done this unforgivable thing before you were saved, then why or even how could the Spirit of God brought you into repentance and faith in Jesus? How could that have even happened? That just does not make sense. And why would he save you if if knowing all things, as God most certainly does, if he knew that you would later on sometime in your Christian life disgrace him in this way and throw out all of his good work in you along with it? That makes the spirit of God sound imprecise, imperfect, self-opposed even in building his kingdom. And that doesn't make sense either, does it? No. God knows what he is doing and he is bringing about his glory in his kingdom. If you have been brought to repentance and trust in Jesus Christ, then you you have not and surely cannot commit this sin that Jesus is speaking of here. But these Pharisees are at least getting close. 
They can see as clear as daylight what it is that they're rejecting and and they speak of it in a way that consciously disgraces God in the highest degree. And if someone's heart is so calloused against God that, that they would call his obviously good work evil, then if you think about it, they aren't really going to be in a state of heart that would have them repent of their sin and seek forgiveness from that God, would they? But that has been Jesus' main message, proclaimed alongside all of these miracles all along. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus goes on with his warning then in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. At first glance, this this verse seems to break apart the Trinity a little bit. I mean, how can we speak against the Son of Man and, and that be okay, but not speak about the Spirit that way? Is Jesus' worth somehow less than the worth of the Holy Spirit? But if anything, if you look closer, actually Jesus is touching again on his divinity with these words. Because what he's saying is that what they are saying against him, a plain 100% human from Nazareth, as everyone already knows, they are actually saying against the Holy Spirit of God which is what he rather neatly explains here, because he and the Father and the Spirit are working together, verse 18 from last week, as one. When Jesus says, be gone to this demon afflicting this poor man, it is the Spirit of God who drives it out. At the time, everyone in the narrative was obviously struggling with that complexity. <laughs> how could this Jesus, a mere man, how can he wield the power of God in all of these miracles? And let's be fair, how hard must it have been for them to come to see that, that Jesus of Nazareth was, was also 100% God? So perhaps all Jesus means here is that, is that those who spoke against him during his earthly incarnation, not knowing then who, who he eternally was, of course they ought to be forgiven for their ignorance on that. And fittingly then, he prayed for their forgiveness, didn't he? He prayed for their forgiveness even from the cross, for at that time they knew not what they were doing. But the manifest power of God in all of these miracles, I mean, it should have been enough to give everyone pretty serious pause of thought to reflect on this and consider how could anyone see all of this stuff and and regard it as evil? That just doesn't make sense, does it? And so back we come to this binary kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan thing again that Jesus is talking about. He wants these people to start figuring out which kingdom they are actually waiting for, to be thinking such things like that about the obvious wonders of God that would bring such sweet healing and release for this tortured man. There are only two binary states and Jesus gives them again to us in a metaphor, verse 33. Either the tree good and its fruit good or the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart is where the mouth speaks from. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. 
The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. A pretty dire warning here from Jesus about the words that we speak. These Pharisees are saying such an evil thing of God because their heart is evil, he says. It's set against God. Your words betray you, Jesus says. Your words betray you because they reflect what's going on deep down in your heart. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Pretty heavy words to round out a pretty heavy section of scripture indeed. We might reflect beyond the crowds and beyond these Pharisees in the narrative here who can see all of this stuff unfolding in front of them and beyond what each group said in response to Jesus as they saw all this stuff unfolding. We might instead come and think then about us, about you and I sitting here today who have not seen firsthand any of these wondrous workings of God that we read about here. What are we to make of all this in terms of us? Well, it doesn't matter that we haven't seen these miracles of Jesus. As he himself said in John chapter 20, in fact, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Not seen and yet have believed, but how? 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 Well, the same Spirit of God is working in us too, to the same end as we read off here. In fact, Jesus returned to the Father in heaven to send the Holy Spirit into the whole world and with this cosmic purpose to bring the right response or the other response to Jesus to bear in everyone's heart. John 16 and verse 8, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus struck a fatal blow to the devil when he brought God's kingdom into this world. Beelzebul has been judged and condemned to eternal destruction. It's only a matter of when. And Jesus sent the Spirit thereafter to bring that truth to bear on everyone's heart, such that all who put their faith in Jesus will find the righteousness that he covers them with before his Father in heaven, and such that everyone who rejects Jesus will remain in their sin. And so this is one of the vital works of the Holy Spirit as we reflected on last week in our teaching spot. This is what he's doing in the world today. By convicting us of these same truths about Jesus, he can bring us into the same life-saving gospel of taking Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. And in fact, there is no other way. There is no other way, as Jesus also said in John chapter 3, unless we are reborn by the Spirit in this way, we cannot enter the kingdom of God of which he speaks here in Matthew 12. And yes, Matthew 12, that kingdom of God broke into this world 
nigh on 2,000 years ago in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The kingdom hasn't yet come in full, which is why we still do all feel the ravages of sin, is why evil still plagues this world. But nevertheless, the kingdom of God has begun. And everyone who has repented and trusted in Jesus has already been rescued from the kingdom of Satan. The Spirit of God has pulled us out of there by bringing us into the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. For this is why Jesus came, Hebrews 2, because the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Satan's kingdom is falling apart because Jesus has wielded the power of God against Beelzebul and is now ransacking his kingdom as the Spirit of God rescues people into this kingdom of God. Because the flip side, the glorious flip side to what Jesus says here, for everyone who will receive the Spirit of God is that every other sin will be forgiven them. Praise Jesus. Not that we should be flippant then about any of those other sins. Every kind of sin we commit is is still so incompatible with the kingdom of God that Jesus had to die to pay for its penalty. So yes, we should be very careful in such heavy scriptures to examine our lives, to examine our hearts, to examine our words, to identify and to fight against sin as we continue to follow out our Lord Jesus. How could we not take such an approach after a scripture like this? And yet we may also take sweet and beautiful comfort, my friends, that our sins be forgiven if we are in Jesus Christ. How could we not take such glorious comfort after a scripture like this? Jesus' gospel call is getting pretty strong at this, this point in Matthew. And every day that the Spirit of God continues to bring about this kingdom of God by, by convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But as was evident in in Jesus' earthly ministry and ever since then, that work of the Spirit results in two kinds of fruit, good fruit and bad fruit, as people respond to Jesus. Some people repent and they turn to him for righteousness and they are saved forever into God's kingdom. Other people harden in their sin even further. They reject Jesus and they remain condemned for their sin. To borrow a phrase from from J.C. Ryle, the same fire that melts the wax hardens the clay. Which kind of fruit has the Spirit of God brought out in you? If you have been convicted of your sin against God and repented, and trusted in Jesus' name for the forgiveness and the salvation that he won, then that is the good fruit of the Spirit of God working in you. So take great assurance 
in that there is no wishy-washy kind of ground in the middle of this war. If you belong to Jesus, then you belong to Jesus. And his victory over Beelzebul was for you. You are of the kingdom of God. But if you haven't been convicted of your sin, or if you haven't repented of it yet, or if you haven't come to trust yet in in the forgiveness that comes in the salvation that Jesus has won, then, then you too need to hear this scripture and hear this powerful truth that Jesus is telling us in this scripture from the other side of all of this. There, there is no kind of safe place anywhere outside of Jesus' domain. And if you will not come into the kingdom of God, then there will only be one other alternative at the end of the day. And it won't be pretty. Because the devil's kingdom is already falling apart. And it will soon be completely destroyed. Heavy stuff. But that's the gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scriptures and that we can sit here and open them and, and wrestle with them. And this, well, this one today is very hard, but we thank you for it all the more. We pray that you'd help us to, to meditate really deeply on what Jesus says here through the rest of this week and through the rest of our lives. And we pray that you would grant by your spirit that we would come to a place of peace with these words. Father, for those who have yet to turn to you in repentance... I pray that you would please have your spirit soften them and and lead them into the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus Christ. For those who you have done that with already, Father, I I pray you please have your spirit comfort them uh, over the certain forgiveness of their sins that is granted to everyone who calls out in Jesus' name, everyone who you indeed have called to Jesus in humble repentance and faith in his powerful work at that cross. Thank you, Father, that you gave us your son like that to pay for your sin so that forgiveness can come to us without undermining your justice. Thank you for sending your spirit into this world to to save people like us with this truth. Save us from darkness and and into your marvellous light. In Jesus' name, we praise you for all this that you are doing as you build your kingdom. Amen.